You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. I'm your host, Melissa Zalouf, and this is the fifth episode of our series for indie developers called What I Wish I Knew When. Joining me on today's podcast is Emily Greer. Emily has formidable experience in the gaming industry, having founded Congregate, a platform for web-based games back in 2006, um, turning it into a leading mobile games publisher. Uh, Fun fact, the very first episode of Level Up was in fact um, with someone from Congregate called Jeff, um, and now is building up a new mobile game studio, Double Loop Games. Emily has some very interesting insights to share um, to inspire any aspiring game founder to take that leap of faith um, and how to do it right. So Emily, thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first off, um, could you sort of maybe give us, we like to start with personal stories. Could you tell us a little bit about your fascinating journey in the gaming industry um, and a little bit about how Double Loop Games was born? Yeah, uh, so I certainly never expected to be in in games. I grew up playing games uh, mostly with my brother Jim, where we, you know, uh, we would we would play games together. But once we both went off to college, um, I stopped playing uh, stopped playing games for for quite a bit, except for I had you know bejeweled on my flip phone and and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but he ended up uh, dropping out of college to uh, to work on Ultima Seven and became a game industry programmer and and took that journey. Whereas I majored in Russian and Eastern European studies in college and was briefly in book publishing and then, but realized that I really liked data and making uh, decisions on sort of rational bases and stumbled into direct marketing um, and uh, had about a 10-year career in the catalog and e-commerce industry um, uh, before that. I flirted with going back to grad school to get a PhD in economics um, and then decided against it. And right pretty soon after I decided against that, um, my brother had the idea for Congregate and I started helping him with his business plan um, because I knew a lot more about sort of marketing and finance and sort of building a company than he did. And uh, I thought it was a great idea. And I volunteered as his co-founder because I sort of felt like, you know, I'm bored with my job. Um, the worst that happens is I have a really interesting year and we fail and I go back to doing what I was already doing. So it was mm-hmm. sort of this, I had really low expectations of our success. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more just, I, I, I wanted to learn and I wanted to try that. I think being in the San Francisco Bay Area definitely sets up this sort of, I think, more open expectation about entrepreneurship, that it's a great thing to try. And so I think mm-hmm. that was part of the context in which I made made that decision. Um, and it turned out to be a great one. Um, and But it didn't mean that I came into games with this feeling that I was bringing other things uh, to the company. And I did, but I always sort of felt self-conscious that I wasn't um, a really, you know, this classic core gamer um, that played everything on console and played, you know, um, Starcraft and Final Fantasy and all of these things. Um, Part of that is that I have an inner ear problem that makes me really sensitive to camera motion. So even Mm -hmm. when I wanted to play a lot of games, they literally make me sick. 
Um, so, 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 you have- so you founded a game company. So I founded, a, well, I founded a game platform um, and it was for flash games, which were all 2D. So I could play all the flash games. That was no problem. Um, but, you know, back in the the mid 2000s um, and late 2000s, flash games were sort of barely considered part of the real industry, right? Like they were these magical things that, you know, millions and billions of people enjoyed. But if you looked at any gaming press or anything about the industry, Flash games didn't exist. I think there's been a little bit more more attention to them in the recent this last year, just because Flash was going away and people sort of sort of took stock about how much they they meant and how much uh, creativity was sort of born there. Um, but uh, it was really under underappreciated. So I, I was part of the game industry, but I was a little bit to the side. Um, but you know, all of those sort of skills from e-commerce and direct marketing. Um, uh, were really, really applicable to the to the game industry. You know, we were building a website. Um, the everything I knew about uh, user acquisition and analytics and all of that was totally relevant and something that I really that w- I was able to sort of take advantage of um, and and uh, build a lot. And you know, as a way to start in the game industry, building a platform that has 100,000 games on it um, and being data oriented, that's a great start, right? Like I got to see um, so much of um, so much about games and how people interacted with them and what people responded to. Um, and it was a very vibrant community on Congregate as well. So um, that was uh, really great to build up and see um, and and really educational um, for me. Um, I took over, we got bought by GameStop in 2010. Um, it was an all cash deal. Everybody's been asking me about that recently. So no, I didn't have any GameStop stock. Uh, and um uh, a few years later, I took over as CEO. My brother was ready to do something else. Um, and that's when I t- decided to take us into to mobile because um, that was clearly where, you know, the game industry was heading. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we couldn't be a platform on mobile the way that we'd been, Congregate had been on the web. Um, but we could, the core of what we did was help independent developers distribute and monetize their games and connect play, and connect to players. And we could do that in, on mobile as a, as a publisher. So we started um, publishing third-party party games, including Adventure Capitalist being a, a big hit. Um, uh, Burrito Bison was another one. Um, an animation Throwdown. We did a, uh, quite a lot there. Um, and then an interesting thing happened, which is... Um, you know, all through this, I'd sort of become known in the game industry, particularly for doing free to play talks. But I still had sort of imposter syndrome because, you know, I played Flash in mobile games, right? That was what mm-hmm. I played. That was the, you know, those aren't the real games. Um, but then the team started joking about the Emily test because the games that um, we were evaluating that I played more than four or five sessions, the ones that I got really into were nearly always the hits. Um, and there were some games that, um, we ended up signing because I was like, I can't stop playing this. And they did really well. And I realized that what had felt like a weakness was actually a strength that I represent sort of the big mass market of um, adults who play games, who may play games quite a lot and play games pretty intensely, but don't think of themselves as gamers. Um, and, you know, if you, you see that in the mobile audience stats, I think um 
for something for the U.S., it was something like only 30% of people who play mobile games think of themselves as gamers. And that includes the vast majority of men as well as women. But on average, they play an hour a day. Um, that's a lot <laughs> of playtime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's always called casual or sort of looked down on. And that, that was something that um, I just looked around and felt that this audience wasn't getting sort of the sort of fullest attention. Um, and appreciation and insight, um, and that there was a real still an opportunity, even within the very crowded competitive game marketplace. And, you know, I'd gone through this, I built a platform, I built a publisher, and then I was like, no, 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 now, now my second act or third act or whatever it is, I want to actually make games and I want to make games for myself, like everybody else in the game industry, but Mm -hmm. I'm a little different from other people in the games industry. So that was the, that was the idea. Um, and, um, you know, Congregate had a great existing audience in history, but I was sort of ready to do something smaller and also really be able to focus on specifically this audience, which would be hard to out of Congregate. And so I decided to leave um, and start a studio. So that's how I got to Double Loop. And we focus on, you know, making games for me. Um, <laughs> uh, but in particular, we, we sort of um, focus on making games um uh, that are deep and are uh, social and community experiences, um, um, which is something that I think is sort of underserved within within this market. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Would you um, categorize these games as casual, uh, given what you've just said about um, how you feel about the, the sort of ca- casual categorization? Yeah, I really try not to use that word because I think, and I did a whole conference talk on this back in 2017, um, that that the framing of the industry between core and casual is is something that's actually interfering with our ability to understand um, and understand the audience and really build games, the best games possible. Um, among other things, it's just kind of, con- you know, it, as soon as you define any part of an industry as core, you're calling the rest of it peripheral, right? Um, and just that framing, I mean, it, if you think about, you know, like the music business or the movie business, sure, they're, you know, they're strategizing around, you know, making action movies where there's a certain part of the audience that will always show up on day one. But they don't frame the audience of, of, um, of moviegoers or music listeners as, you know, the core audience versus everybody else. And I think that's something that's kind of holding the game industry back is to just have that sort of binary thinking. Everybody, you know, almost everybody watches movies, almost everybody listens to music, almost everybody plays games. Um, and they're different parts of the market and we shouldn't sort of load how we refer to them so much. Mm-hmm. That's, I actually do think that there is like a part of the market that is that truly is kind of casual that will pick up a very simple game occasionally and, and, and go back and forth. Um, I think, uh, and just only play very simple games once in a while. I think I call that kind of true casual. And I think hyper casual is something often something much closer to that kind of casual. But if you, 
you know, the depth to which people play um, so-called casual games, I think is, uh, and the sort of engagement and the expertise and the the depth is, is, is can be really, really profound and um, calling it casual is a misnomer. That being said, it's a shorthand mm-hmm. and it's a very hard shorthand to break. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, I talk as much as possible about, you know, you know, people who don't think of themselves as gamers instead of the casual audience. But that means I'm using 20 words where one will do. And mm-hmm. so often I will fall back and say casual, even though I hate it. Um, but I haven't come up with a good replacement. So I understand why people still use it. Right. It makes sense. Um, I, I'd like to sort of jump to picking your brain a little. Um mm-hmm. You've explained sort of what went into deciding to leave Congregate and found mm-hmm. Double Loop. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say you're sort of uh, an average game developer thinking to yourself, I'm going to start, I want to start my own studio or even I, I want to build my first game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, considering that today also there are sort of more more genres, more types of uh, players uh, out there, how do you start? Well, what's the best way, right, to choose what's the first game to make? Uh, does it need to sort of come from internal passion uh, or is it wiser to take a more sort of like market-based opportunistic approach that says, okay, I can see that um, X type of game uh, is really popular right now. I'm going to make a game within that, um, you know, genre or subgenre, or even I'm noticing a, a TikTok trend and I'm going <laughs> to jump on it. Um, where do you think is the best place to start? And, and maybe there actually isn't a right answer, right? Yeah, I would say there there isn't a right answer. I think that um, the, the, the best games, the most interesting games, the games that break through are generally made from a place, from a point of view about the player and what they want and some level of creativity and authenticity. Um, but that can also be part of, you can sort of mix that with also, oh, there's this trend um, that I think is interesting and let's do that. I also think it's important to be realistic about what your resources are, what your strengths are, what your knowledge is. Um, And if you are, you know, a small team, your dream may be to make, you know, the the world's most awesome 3D co-op shooter, but it's not realistic, no matter how much passion you have for that success with your first title. And so... Um, you know, making, say, an idle game or a hyper casual game just to get your sort of feet under you and to go through the practice of shipping a game and looking at analytics and learning things. Like, I think that can absolutely be um, a great place to start. And if you try to skip to, I want to make my dream project, without ever having made a simpler project, you're likely to get in trouble. You're, you're always building on what you, you've learned before. I think, you know, m- you know, me coming in as, you know, of a publisher of a large number of games, um, and then Shelby, my co-founder, um, is very experienced, has worked on, you know, titles for, you know, every, every console, every, um, every platform, lots of free to play, lots of all sorts of things. We're starting at a higher base level. So we went 
more towards, okay, we're going to make our dream game. But that was also in the context of, you know, the luxury of being able to, you know, to, to have the VC backing to, you know, hire a bigger team and go after it. Um, we were we were very much targeting um, from the start. We want to make really big, successful games. Um, and we had that luxury. But I don't think that would be the right answer at all for most teams. Um, we were we were in a sort of a lucky, privileged place on that to be able to do it. And, um, you know, but I do think you should never make a game with contempt for the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that often I think does happen where you're just sort of copying something that's successful without necessarily caring about the player or caring about their experience or thinking it through. And I think that is really problematic um, and not likely to lead to success. I, I really believe deeply in, um, you know, that there are a lot of different experiences that are great and fun and you should uh, respect all of them and build the best game you can, all of them. Um, and, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be your personal passion. Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, you mentioned your co-founder um, mm-hmm. at Double um some developers sort of might be thinking you know I, I i think i want to go the solo route um is that risky um and this is kind of like a general entrepreneurial question right um it doesn't yeah. only apply to games um but from your view how important is having a co-founder to creating a successful game studio especially given that you sort of had uh one in each case um yeah. uh, and and is it also how do investors see it um do they sort of trust um a, a team of two more than they would perhaps uh, just one I'll answer the first part, which is that uh, uh, investors definitely see trust a team of two more than just one, but that's the least important reason to do it. Um, I uh, I did not even consider doing my second company without a co-founder. Um, the loneliest uh, business period in business that I had was the year after my brother left uh, Congregate, um, before I essentially before I hired the CEO um, Pania Haratados, who I was. Um, ran um, congregate with for the later period. You really, you know, it's lonely to be in charge. Um, there's a one thing that's surprising when you start your own company is how different it feels versus being an employee. One, when you start your own company, ultimately, absolutely everything is your responsibility. <laughs> and uh, there's nothing you can say, well, that doesn't matter. Um, I don't need it's not important for me to deal with that. And that's a level of sort of kind of stress that is, is, is very hard and, uh, and can be lonely. Um, you can start a studio um, on your own um, and you can do any kind of business, but I think it is absolutely worth it to invest in finding somebody to build it with. Now, um, it's better to do it alone than to do it with the wrong person. Um, it's really important to, to make sure that you have the same goals um, and the same values um, because those things can create a tremendous amount of conflict that will tear uh, any company apart. Um, but if you are aligned on those and you have complementary skill sets um, and you have somebody that you can make the big decisions with and talk things through, 
you're it's going to you're going to feel so much better and you're going to make much better decisions and get more done. So uh, um, highly, highly recommend. A co-founder. <laughs> yes. um, um, I think if, if you get into three or four, that that is possible. But again, that becomes a more complex set of dynamics to work through. In particular, um, who has final say? How do you make decisions? That is really, really important. Yeah, I, I will say um, we uh, we have eight. <laughs> and I, so um, so yes, the the complex co-founder dynamic is not one um, we're unfamiliar with. Although although I will say I think actually it works really beautifully um, here. But I, I think that's that's probably quite rare. Um, so beyond sort of having getting the right person on board, um, if not more than one person, what are some of the key tools? Um, market research, um, development, and operations that you've been using um, at the start at Double Loop. Um, and are there any musts that you'd recommend to an indie developer just getting started? Yeah. Um, so the way that we started, and I don't think this is prescriptive. I think there's a lot of ways to do it. But the way we started is that I had written up um, sort of a series of things that I thought were really important in terms of play, how players feel playing a game mm-hmm. and why uh, it was important in their lives. Um, and then Shelby and I just uh, and Shelby agreed with them and we talked about what our pillars were. Um, for games. And then we brainstormed a lot of ideas and a lot of different genres, actually, um, that we thought could meet them. Um, and then, and then from there, we went and did market research on the market size and various other things, um, about those ideas. As it happened, the idea that we had liked best and sort of the market research information that we, uh, came back and, and agreed that our number one thing was, um, was probably a good idea. And then we spent, um, uh, quite an extensive period of time as a, a very small team, um, me, Shelby, uh, our engineer, Min, and our art director, Graham, prototyping. Um, and we prototyped something like 25 or 26 mechanics. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we really tried to take that time of creativity and experimentation with a really small team um, before bringing anybody in and building the full full game. Um, we, we felt like exploring that um, really let us uh, get to something interesting and something um, innovative uh, and um, without the pressure of a whole team needing something to do. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, it seems like you've just done everything in a very optimized fashion. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the impression I'm getting. Um, you, you, uh, you've mentioned before that you, you want to focus on creating um, sort of very uh, kind of a place for people to connect. Um, <laughs> and community um and i think elsewhere that you you want to create very powerful social mechanics um Mm -hmm. in your games and this is something i think um and i might be sort of jumping off a little bit but Mm -hmm. in the in the pandemic i think people um in some ways found um you know they were connecting online with people more than ever for better or for worse Mm -hmm. um and i think games was a big part of that um Mm -hmm. do you think that there's first of all do you think we've seen a big improvement um in the sort of social mechanics of games in the last year Uh, Mm -hmm. and do you think there's more room for improvement moving forward uh i you know i think 
I'm not sure that the the mechanics have changed as much as our usage of them has changed, if that makes sense, right? Like Among Us was uh, has been out for years and it became, you know, it took off this year, I think, in, in part because of of uh, various circumstances. I, you know, I, I personally have a point of view that the social mechanics in games for the so-called casual market have been relatively weak, in part because it's a lot of puzzle games, um, and puzzle games are don't lend themselves very well to to cooperative play um, and sort of real sort of strategizing and the kind of cooperation you get in guild play in a lot of um, you know MMOs or mid core games, and that. I think that there is a lot of room for innovation and interesting things to happen um, for that market. But also, I think, you know, we're 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 an interesting uh, set of creatures. And I would never say anything is sort of tapped out or we're not going to keep discovering new things. I think Mm -hmm. we will keep discovering new things in all genres. I just think that there's more opportunity um, in in the one that I'm attacking, which of course I would, or I wouldn't be, you know, going after it. Uh, Mm -hmm. We all, all, (laughs) you have to believe something strongly to, to say, um, you know, let, let, you know, 20 people, uh, let's spend the next three years doing this or whatever it ends up being. Yeah. Very true. Um, What have been some of the main challenges and particularly uh, unexpected obstacles you've experienced so far um, at Double Loop, which which I imagine is actually going to be a really interesting question because to... From, from what you've described today, you anticipated a lot of different challenges and knew what you, what you needed going in. Yes, and that's definitely the, you know, having having been a publisher is a very interesting way to start becoming, um, to start a studio, because I've, I've really seen the mistakes that a lot of, and, and challenges a, a very large number of studios had, and been able to pull out a lot of common threads and sort of, um, think through, oh, I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen. So we're going to take that. Um, but um, uh, obviously did not anticipate a pandemic um, and did not anticipate that I'd, we'd be building up our studio um, in a situation where, you know, we can't even meet some of our new employees in person. Um, you know, there's multiple multiple people who work for Double Loop now who I've who I've never met in person. And that's, you know, that's a little strange. Um, um, and I think we were lucky in that we had done all of that prototyping as a team, mostly in person, and had gotten through about three quarters of it when the pandemic hit um, last mm-hmm. March. Um, so we were skipping, we were, we were able to move into the sort of more settled part of and directed part of development. Um, but it's, it, it's a challenge and, and figuring out how to build company culture in this very fragmented online space. Um, and how do you build up sort of knowledge and trust between people in this? But it's, you know, it's analogous to building, you know, trust and relationships in online games too. So um, Mm. I think, you know, it's something that has been challenging in different ways. I think we're doing okay. 
Um, I'm really, really excited for the possibility that, you know, uh, everybody's vaccinated and we can have an offsite and actually meet mm -hmm. each other sometime this year. Um, but I also think that we've learned things that will be helpful in, in, in making the game. Um, you know, I think that's the main thing that's been, it's, that's been unexpected. Um, the other thing is something that isn't public and so I can't talk about. Um, uh, and, um, you know, if you, if we have a, have an interview in, in two months, I will, I will, I can tell you about it, but unfortunately. How intriguing. I'll, I'll do it today. Yeah. That is how you ensure you get invited back on the podcast in two months. Um, but, uh, but fair enough. Uh, we yep. will, we'll wait with bated breath. Yeah. Um, so, so last question. Mm -hmm. uh, which is one we ask everyone, um, what's the one thing you wish you had known uh, when you were at the beginning of your double loop journey? Or I will also um, say, if you, you can also answer this um, from the from the congregate perspective, um, but the beginning of the journey, one, one or the other. So the thing that I wish that I'd known before we started double loop was that uh, how that we really needed to think very, very carefully about in how much we as founders would be able to contribute as individual con contributors um, to the game and how much work we were really going to be able to do um, personally on the game. That's a classic founder trap um, is that you always underestimate how much work there is on business development and fundraising and, you mm -hmm. know, and, administration of, you know, taxes and payroll and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I think we sort of fooled ourselves that because we had the split where I focus on that and business uh, and publishing and, and fundraising, that Shelby would really be able to spend um, kind of all of our time as a full-time contributor. And that was true while we were prototyping, but when we left that stage and started um, expanding the team and getting to kind of more of a full development state, you know, that she was carrying both a load of creative development and lead, creative and leading development just quickly became kind of uh, overwhelming. And, um, you know, she started to uh, be a little bit of a bottleneck on, on development that was, you know, hard on her and a little frustrating. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we really should have hired uh, at least sort of one designer to support her um, earlier in the process or some other kind of support. Because once mm -hmm. you get into a whole, as a founder, there's always going to be so much work. Um, it's really something that you, you, you need to it becomes really hard to dig out of. Um, you know, we're um, in the point at a point now where we're able to do that, but um, you know, it put a lot of kind of stress on her that I and on the development that I really wish uh, hadn't happened. So, um, you know, I what I my general recommendation is, you know, as a founder, whatever you think you're going to be able to do for the game, um, you know, cut it in half and make sure that there is um, some redundancy because there's going to be a lot of time when you need to put your time to other things and you can't, you can't do everything. You can't be just a regular team member in a larger team. And that's a, that's an easy mistake to make. And we made it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's actually probably quite sage advice for any entrepreneur. 
Um, but uh, but this has been super interesting. Thank you very, very much uh, for being on the show, Emily. Kind of feel like um, we could probably talk. I'd love to go back and have a whole session just on casual versus core, um, but but probably not, not for right now. Uh, so thank you very, very much for being on the show today. And everyone else, thank you as always for listening. <laughs>